This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, and then we replay during the week. We're talking to David Fagenbaum, who's the Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and a new author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Uh, David's also an MBA, and that's going to actually play an important role in our discussion. So, David, you've been having several interviews now. Talk to us broadly about the genesis of the book. Well, first off, thank you guys so much for having me. Sure, delighted. Really thrilled to be on the show with you. So I um, went through, uh, I've gone through quite a journey over the last decade. I was a healthy third-year medical student here at Penn without any issues, and then I became deathly ill. I had my last rites read to me back in 2010, and I spent almost six months hospitalized, um, much of that time without a diagnosis. So uh, I was eventually diagnosed, and, and began to get treatment, but unfortunately I had multiple relapses and and in total almost died five times. So the genesis of this book is that I learned so much about life from each of these times where I almost died, lessons that I didn't know before I became ill and lessons that I want to share with others so they don't have to wait until they have their last rites read to them to be able to start to implement these lessons into life. Right, because not not that many people get Years and years and years after that particular instance. Right. And so it is a, a unique gift to be able to share. Um, sort of in addition to the the stories of, you know, faith and resilience in the book, you have an incredible tale of chasing your cure, as the title suggests, and actually putting the MD and the MBA to work, helping to treat and cure to your disease. Give give our listeners the highlights of that. And yeah. a very your innovative story. model. Well, thank very you. Th- that's, that's such an important point. This is, you know, one... One part of the story is just, you know, surviving, you know, how can you make it through these um, these constant challenges and hopefully lessons that others can learn. But, but another really important part is that it, it wasn't just about survival. It was actually about building a community, getting the right people together to actually tackle this problem. Because if we didn't tackle Castleman disease, then I would have just continued to re- repeatedly get in and out of the hospital and repeatedly um, get so, so sick. So um, I'd enrolled here at um, the Warden School after I finished medical school. I had, at that stage, begun conducting... nothing else to do. (laughs) (laughs) At that stage, I had... um, uh, begun conducting Castleman disease research, and I'd built a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to try to accelerate research for this disease that was killing me. Uh, and we had made a lot of progress, but I learned pretty early on that the greatest barriers for progress for Castleman disease really had nothing to do with science or technology. They were that people weren't organized, mm-hmm. that there was inefficient use of funding, inefficient use of samples. These are managerial problems, business problems. And so I decided that I would enroll at Warden after medical school to try to build Build skills in these areas to help in the fight against Castleman's, but also to give me flexibility and time to continue to do my laboratory work just down the street. Excellent. And I think that that is probably very startling news to a lot of listeners. If you think about medical challenges or the inability for something to be treated or to be cured, my guess is most people are thinking, well, that hasn't been figured out yet. The science can't support it yet. These are truly unanswered questions. But the reality is it takes something like 10 to 15 years, I've heard, a range for something to get from the lab to practice and all sorts of 
other issues along the way for something to get commercialized and to sort of get to market. So paint the picture of that problem for us, David. Like, what does that landscape look like? Because I think this is going to be a wait what moment for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, and it's funny because it sort of harkens back to our previous guest talking about, you know, uncoordinated activities Mm -hmm. within an ecosystem and how do you coordinate them and put them in the same direction. Well, you're exactly right that the rare disease space um, is is unfortunately quite disorganized. So there are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans, and 95% of those 7,000 rare diseases don't have a single FDA-approved therapy. So despite all the progress we've made as a medical community, there are still so many diseases, so many patients that have been left behind. And it's not because researchers and physicians like myself aren't working really hard. We are working hard. But unfortunately, the system is not coordinated, and many of us are working on our own in silos. And so when I saw this problem and I, and I observed it in Castleman disease, um, what I think really struck me early on was that research progress typically happens quite randomly. And, and by that, what I mean is that you basically have to hope that the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time with the right skill set. Patient cohort. And, and, the, and yeah. all this stuff has to line up. And when it does, you get treatments. And when it doesn't, you don't get treatments. And so when you have a rare disease, you say, well, wait a minute. I don't want to just kind of wait, wait. and hope that all these things line up. You know, Rather than waiting for the right researcher to apply for the right project at the right time and hoping that all this lines up, why don't we figure out what is the right project? Let's find the right person to do it, and then let's go get them to do it right now. And, and so operationally what that meant was that um, I first started out by focusing on identifying all the physicians and researchers worldwide that were treating Castleman disease or researching Castleman disease. We connected them through an online discussion board and also an in-person meeting uh, back in 2012. But the goal of connecting these these people was about 400 at the time. The reason we wanted to connect them was that we wanted to crowdsource from that community to, to understand what was known about the disease, what was not known about the disease, and what were the really important research questions that we needed to ask. And once we could identify what research questions needed to be asked and prioritize them, then we could go out and recruit the best person around the world to actually do the work and no longer just kind of wait and hope that all these things would line up. But I could go find the right person. I could knock on his his or her door until he or she did our work. Yeah. And dangle money in front of them, right? Like money's (laughs) being spent. So it's like, how do you align? It's, you know, sort of consistent with our impact investing work. We need to bring together the field and say, hey, practitioners, what's holding you up? Because researchers know how to research. Yes. Doctors know how to, you know, test, treat, cure. Like, yeah. let's put these pieces together. Yes. So it's startling that that is a rare instance that, you know, bringing folks together to identify, you know, the most pressing issues or what are the, the largest bottlenecks. And proactively doing it. It's yes. sort of, you know, I think that that's, that's the really the... interesting part because it's sort of like they're already doing their, their research and they have the interest. Mm-hmm. But again, how do you sort of say what's the problem and can you take care of this as it fits? And it may be someone who's actually not in your particular field. So for Castleman disease, we had a few researchers doing work and they all have their own areas of expertise. But when we prioritize what should be done, most of our top priority projects were not studies that anyone in our field could do. So we had to go to other fields and find other Hmm. researchers who had done that kind of study in another disease, bring them in. And so if we had just kind of waited and hoped for this to happen, Mm -hmm. there's no way those people would have done the work. Yeah, and and this is really a new model of business and medicine, right? Because I bet a lot of those incredibly well-meaning 40 people, 400 people 400. Many, were, that were sitting around the table, 
had the best of intentions. They Absolutely. weren't not doing something they thought needed to be done, but they were doing something the way it had always been done. Exactly. And there were a lot of people that were busy clinicians, so they didn't have time to do research, but they had great research ideas. They couldn't do it in, the, in their lab, but they could share it with us yeah. and we could go find someone else to do it. Yeah. How's the money moved? So I'm imagining that a huge opportunity here is making more efficient use of capital. You yes. know, maybe it's not a thousand small grants, maybe it's pooling for some of these big research questions. Tell us how that landscape evolved. You're exactly right. So uh, research costs money. And um, early on, we didn't have any of it. (laughs) Um, So our first year, we raised about $10,000 and we gave out $10,000. And that important first, that first study generated some important results, which we were really excited about. And we used those results to then get another $50,000. And over the course of the last seven years, we've raised and spent about $1 million on research, which compared to a lot of diseases is quite small. Yes, a million dollars in medical research research, can be. But what's really exciting is that the million dollars that we raised and invested, much of that million dollars, a lot of it has actually either been raised or helped to be raised by classmates of mine from when I did my MBA here, friends who helped out um, with fundraising and with events. But out of the from the million dollars we raised, that's led to an additional seven million dollars in external funding. So from the federal government, from pharmaceutical companies and from nonprofits. And is that going to the the uh, researchers? Going to the researchers directly. So you know the million dollars we gave out to researchers has resulted in an additional seven million to researchers to continue to push forward the work. So it's about, you know, an ROI in the sense that, you know, we're getting more funding towards Castleman disease, but it also reflects that we're generating exciting and important results that other people want to support and be a part of. And on top of that, we've now identified the first drug in 25 years um, that's the first targeted therapy for Castleman disease. It's actually a drug that I identified while I was a business school student here at Warden. So wow. in, in between my classes, I was going down to the lab just down the street, and um, I identified a drug that was developed 25 years ago for kidney wow. transplantation, had never been used before for Castleman disease. Um, but based on what I was seeing in the lab, I thought that maybe it could work in my case. And at that stage, I'd nearly died five times. There was nothing to lose, I'd right? run out of all options, nothing to lose. And so um, I decided to start myself on this drug. And um, now it's been five and a half years that I've been in remission, have had no relapses, and I'm doing really well on this drug. And Have actually, other patients started taking it? Yes. Yeah, so we've now given the drug to about 10 patients off-label. About half of them have improved. The other half did not benefit from the drug. And we've just started a clinical trial two weeks ago to give it to 24 more patients. And so what gets me really excited is that this is helping not just me. You know, the book's called Chasing My Cure, but really it's chasing our cure. But it does also remind me that it's likely not going to be the cure for everyone. And and I don't even know if it's the cure for me. I could certainly relapse tomorrow. We hope it is. Yes, me too. Uh, But but it's exciting to think that this drug that was sitting on a shelf that was developed 25 years ago could be a treatment for Castleman disease. How many more of these 1,500 drugs that were approved for one thing yeah. might actually be a treatment for the 7,000 things yeah. without answers? And it's a cheap date, medically speaking, <laughs> yes, right? I mean, this exactly this right. drug has been developed. Right. A lot of the, the testing costs, the production yes. costs are sunk. The safety, yeah. They're done, you You're know? Right. So how can, you know, I mean, that's an incredibly efficient business model. Unfortunately, though, it's very efficient as far as cost, but there's very little upside as far as incentive. And so... So that's what prevents this from often being done is because there's very little incentive or, or profit to be made from things because like this. Because of the uh, volume of rare disease patients? Volume, but also the fact that it's already generic. Mm. So it's a generic drug. So it's an inexpensive drug, which is great for old. me. Yeah, it's great for me because it's, uh, you know, it's cheap and, it, and it's well studied. Um, but from a 
commercial perspective, it's mm-hmm. already generic and um, small populations. It's hard to, to you know have a cheap drug in a small population. Well, that sure. makes your model all the more important because if, <laughs> exactly. if it's cheap to, to produce and get the research and get the information out there, you don't need that huge upside on, the, on selling the drugs. You're exactly yeah. right. right. So this is painting a tremendously optimistic picture, I think, for this is like win, 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 <laughs> win, right? It can't be that easy. Yes. So I'm imagining these 400 researchers and, and physicians have competing priorities. They're all trying to get their own tenure. They're yep. all, you know, you know, having their own long patient list. They had to deal with electronic medical <laughs> records coming out over the last decade. How how has the group and that consortium continued to work together, identify pressing research questions? Has that been a smooth path? You're absolutely right. It has not been smooth. We have uh, incredible. We have an incredible community of physicians and researchers. But just as you said, there are so many competing priorities, and in particular, um, competing incentives. In the sense that um, samples from Castleman disease patients or for any rare disease are actually some of the most important assets when you apply for grant funding. To mm-hmm. say I have samples for this many patients, which as a patient that makes me cringe because I'm like, wait a minute, how are my samples your assets? Right. Like, use them for research. But what I actually found is that. A lot of times rare disease samples can be almost hoarded at a particular research institution because because they're valuable. And so if I keep my samples here, I can get grant funding to do important work. And they're not doing it for bad reason. They they really believe that they are going to do the best work. Sure, and they need 10 samples to get there or something. So so they'll keep it. But what happens when you have a rare disease is that everyone has like five samples. And so everyone's trying to do a study on their own five samples. And you really can't find trends when you're looking at five samples. What you really need are 50 or 100. And in order to do that, you need people to share samples with one another. So that's been our biggest challenge, challenge is yeah. to get samples together. What? Oh. So you're listening to <laughs> Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are talking with uh, David Fagenbaum, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and brand new author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Yeah, here's a, an insider tip for our listeners. You can tell the really good segments because we, we run through the re-intros because <laughs> we're having too much fun having the conversation. So talk to us about the patient experience um, and if there's a way to develop efficiencies around that sourcing, because, you know, Business Radio, we're always looking at who are all the different stakeholders in these ecosystems that may or may not be connected. Uh, what's that experience like? You're, you're on all sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, it's complicated because patients are the ones going through these diseases. Patients are the ones who have the most intimate understanding and knowledge of their disease. Yet oftentimes there's not communication between a mm-hmm. patient and physician, at least it's not two-way, and that it's a lot of the doctor telling the patient right. what to do, how they should be feeling, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a two-way street. And that's not the case for everyone by any means. I don't want to paint that picture. But I think that um, as a medical community, we need to do a better job of listening to patients and involving patients um, in decision-making um, more so than we do right now. I, I think from a research side, um, there there's a really exciting trend that's happening now in the rare disease space, and that's patients and their loved ones starting to drive forward research. Mm-hmm. And that up until now, patients and loved ones like myself, we just kind of waited and hoped that researchers would come up with the right project. We raised money and we, we kind of gave it to them and said, you know, do with it how you should. We trust you. But what's begun to change is that families and patients are starting to say, you know, we're not just going to raise money and wait to see what happens. We're actually going to get in the driver's seat. So we're going to start connecting you guys, start prioritizing research, finding and recruiting the right people to do the right work. And I think that 
that is so critical for focus, but it's also critical to get physicians and researchers to hear from patients about what they really need, what's mm-hmm. important to a patient, because unfortunately that's kind of been left out of the equation until now. And what's an example where maybe the patient would want something different than what the the you know practitioner, researcher, physician might expect? I think one might be in this concept of off-label drug use. So, you know, drugs that were developed for one thing that might be effective for another. A lot of physicians are hesitant to use a drug that doesn't have a clinical trial behind it or doesn't have an approval from the FDA for that particular disease. And rightly so, because you don't want to give the wrong drug at the wrong time and hurt a patient. Um, But there are certainly rare diseases where um, where off-label drug use is actually very helpful. And patients are oftentimes maybe more willing to take on the risks that come with it Mm -hmm. than the physician might be. And so I think trying to align patients and physicians around as a patient, I'm willing to take this on, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe there needs to be some sort of operational or legal agreement that goes into this that says, like, you know, I'll take on more risk, and I'm, you know, I will not sue you if something goes sure, wrong sure. with this and, drug. And that must exist for clinical trials. It does right? exist There's for clinical trials, basis. exactly. Yeah. So the, I mean, these sound. It's it's. It must have been a fascinating experience to be an MBA student, going like, there are acronyms for this. <laughs> there are systems for this. Like, You're exactly tell right. the med school. Would you change anything about the curriculums of a medical school or a business school, given your experience? Yeah, I think that um, in medical school, we are trained and we learn so much about how do you treat the patient in front of you. Um, And we don't learn very much about beyond that patient sitting in front of you about the system. We learn that kind of on the fly Mm -hmm. when we get into residency. In business school, I I was in the healthcare management program, and we learn a lot about everything except for the patient in front of you. It's kind of, you know, (laughs) how does, and so for me, I loved it because I got like everything about the patient in front of me, and then I got everything about the broader system. You've got five years, folks. (laughs) You too can grab a pen med degree and a Wharton MBA. But I think that what's important is for us to maybe blur the lines of both. So, you know, in business school programs, whether it's healthcare or whether it's social impact, um, focusing not just on kind of the business angle, but also thinking a little bit more about about the the impact angle or about the healthcare angle, and then in healthcare, focusing a little bit more on the broader picture. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, you know fits your model perfectly because you really is sort of saying just working with the patient, even if the patient is me, is not going to be enough. That's right. We need to think about the system and how we connect that, and I think that. That is a challenge um, and an opportunity for so many other areas, not just medicine. I agree. So do you think there's going to be another uh, group using your model for another disease? Yeah, there have been a few others that have actually already started using Uh our model. We call it the collaborative network approach. And we've spent a good bit of time the last couple years trying to synthesize what is it, how do we do it, what are the steps behind it, so that other groups can can begin using it. And actually, we just partnered with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, of course, Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg's foundation or our philanthropic outlet about a year ago to try to do just what you proposed, which is how do we scale and share what we've done for Castleman disease with many other rare diseases? Awesome. How did it go? It's going really well. We're, um, we're nine months into our partnership and um, we basically had had bootstrapped and built our own um, sort of tools for Castleman disease for crowdsourcing and um, prioritizing research. Oh, and research. they're like, oh, we can do better. <laughs> and, and, and so exactly, they came in and they said, you know what, let's put our engineers and let's put you know some really smart tech folks on this problem. We know something about social yeah. networks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it's been a wonderful partnership awesome. so far. And a, and a fellow M, a Wharton MBA who's uh, in senior leadership over there. Yeah, I'm blanking yeah. on her name. Caitlin. But, Caitlin, yes. Caitlin Fox. So, excellent. Um, I guess one thing that I want to highlight before the segment ends is we have a lot of listeners who themselves are entrepreneurs, and I don't know if there's any room after your name, after the comma, <laughs> for, for entrepreneur as well, but you certainly have been 
an entrepreneur in developing this this model, and probably quite similar to most entrepreneurs who would identify that as as their you know who they are entirely juggling multiple priorities yep. of you know I want to see this through and get it better and deeper. But also I think he juggles I, pretty well. You know? <laughs> Thank you. So so what advice would you have for an entrepreneur who has you know a strong passion point as you have um, around a particular issue, whatever it is, um, to sort of figure out how they how they change the system yeah. um, because we see a lot of very myopic entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. So for me, when I set out to create the Castle Disease Collaborative Network, and 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 the the CDCN is a, is a nonprofit, you know, we're building it from scratch. I think there's a lot of parallels here. Um, we spend a lot of time understanding what is currently being done um, in Castleman disease, and, and equally as importantly, what has been done in nearby fields. You know, thinking about you want to have a good understanding for your landscape, but you also want to say, well, how are people doing in our mm-hmm. parallel fields nearby? That was really important. And then for me, having a really terrific mentor. Arthur Rubenstein, a, a physician scientist in the medical school, has been uh, my mentor and, and close friend throughout this. And so having someone who's kind of gone through the terrain before and can tell you, you know, when there might be a landmine in front of you um, to avoid it, that's really critical. And I think expecting landmines along the way as an entrepreneur is really important. Um, as you said earlier, it hasn't all been rainbows and, and, and unicorns. There have been a lot of challenges. And, and you know, one of the reasons I, I wrote this book, Chasing My Cure, is because through going through these ups and downs, I learned a lot about living and life from challenges. And it's really a, a universal tale about how do you get up and fight back when life knocks you down. Yeah. I mean, that's the resilience is probably the one characteristic uh, our, our guests will suggest for entrepreneurs and your yes. experiences. Absolutely. For better or worse, I've given it to you in spades. So when just the minute and a half we have left, what little bit of advice would you give an MBA student when they're thinking about what they can do in terms of medicine? I think that I would recommend that um, MBA students um, not limit themselves in thinking about, you know, I can or can't do, you know, something in medicine or in a field that maybe I don't have experience in. I, I think the MBA degree and what you learn about organization and management puts you makes you so well suited to really dive into an industry and, and disrupt it. And I think sometimes it's actually okay if you don't have a healthcare background, if you have an MBA or an MBA student and you're interested in healthcare, to look at it from that kind of orthogonal angle and mm-hmm. say, you know what, maybe this could be done a little differently. I think we need more people like that that aren't entrenched in science to, to look at things in different ways. Yeah, we we talk about that, ha- having sort of multi-languages that you can yes. sort of talk from different perspectives and, and what value that brings because you, you're not just within your own echo chamber or box. Yes. What's the name? What's the word for someone who speaks many languages? Is it poly- polyglot? Pol- polyglot. <laughs> You are hearing from Polyglot today, too, in our guest here, listeners. Yeah. So um, with that, we're going to end the show. Um, so we want to thank everybody for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Wharton Social. We'd also like to thank our program director, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and our producer, Matt Datz. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman, and you've been listening to Dogs and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.